we are sometimes circumstances in life kind of happen. Thank you. And uh, we've been promoting this discipleship class that we're going to start uh, the first second Wednesday in July. And some things happened in, in Eric's life where he's gotten he's, he needs to take care of some people where he works, and he's going to be spending more time there, so he can't do that class. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to actually do the gospel class again at, at Element. In order to be members at Element, uh, we consider our membership the ministers of the church. The bulk of ministry that is done through this church is done by you guys. It is not done you know, by your elder team. Our elder team is to equip you and to help you, but the majority of ministry is going to be done by you guys. And so we believe that all of our members are ministers. Okay, so in order to become a member at Element, the way this works is, first off, well, you've got to be a Christian, okay? That's, that's kind of baseline. You've got to believe Jesus, live and walk in his ways, and, and love as Jesus loves, stuff like that. The second thing we require is baptism. You need to be baptized. Uh, the early church held together by two rites that they commonly did, which was communion, which we celebrate every week, and baptism, where we remember Christ, you know, where he was buried and raised for us, and we identify with him, and that's going to be baptized. And the third thing we require for uh, membership is going through this gospel class. Uh, gospel class is essential basic theology that we think all Christians should know. It talks about scripture, how we got the Bible, why we accept it as authoritative, uh, how it came through the history to get to us, then what the Bible reveals about God, what it reveals about sin and creation and salvation and stewardship, and ultimately the seventh week of that is what at Element as as a church that we intend to do and, and how we are structured and how we how we work that out in what we do in the world. So that's kind of the gospel class. So uh, we actually have about three to four times as many people coming now as when we did when we first started this and I went through the gospel class. So we're going to do another one in the place of the discipleship class and hopefully in the fall Eric might be in a place to actually do the discipleship class. We're just hoping and praying for that. Okay. So, lastly, uh, this is the last week of, of our series on the seven woes, and uh, I actually asked Eric months ago to, to, you know, do this week, the week before 4th of July, and so Eric Gifruti is one of our elders here. Uh, we believe that uh, a plurality of eldership in a church, that there is not just one pastor. The New Testament model is that there is a plurality of elders. And so right now we have three in our church. Eric is one of those. And he's going to come and talk about the last woe this morning. Uh, he is, I'll tell you, this is, this is how highly I value Eric. When we first started doing Element, I did not want to be the only elder doing this and starting it. I needed a plurality, and he is the first guy I sought out and talk to you. That's how much I respect him. So give me your attention, and we're going to show you this woe video just to get you in the mood again of, all right. Whoa. Am I on? Can you hear me? Yeah. Good morning, Element. How are you guys doing? Great. If you've been here the last six weeks, you've heard Pastor Aaron go through six woes. As he said, we're doing the seventh this morning. In Jesus' first public sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he warned the people about Israel's uh, religious leaders, and he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. So now this is his last public sermon. He laid out the seven woes describing the woeful condition of these religious leaders and those who follow them. So the word woe, as that video depicts, it's, it's more of a feeling as more than a word. It's, it's more than a word. It's actually more of a feeling. And so it comes from the Greek word uahi. Can you say that with me? Uahi. There it is up there. Um, it's kind of like the word buzz or hiss kind of conveys uh, an idea. In, um, 
it kind of suggests in this sense more of like a, a guttural outcry, if you will, of anger or pain. In the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it's used to express grief and sorrow, despair, a fear of losing one's life. And in the New Testament, it's used to speak of sorrow and judgment. Um, it carries with it this mingled idea of punishment and pity, cursing and compassion. In this series of seven woes, though, Jesus uses the word more as a declaration or as a curse. It's a pronouncement of God's impending judgment upon the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, he wasn't saying it profanely like, like, damn you, like you guys are going to be damned to hell, but rather he was certifying the fact that their actions, which came from hearts that were far from God, would leave them doomed to hell if they didn't repent. So, so far, we looked at how these religious leaders were cursed for six different things. We looked at their exclusion of men from the kingdom of God. We looked at their subversion of men's faith by making them twice the sons of hell as themselves. We've looked at the inversion of God's priorities by magnifying the insignificant, like tithing cumin and mint, and by minimizing the, the weightier matters like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Their extortion of others and their self-indulgence while they were polishing the outside of their cups and dishes. And we looked at their uh, spiritual contamination of everyone that they contacted, like touching whitewashed tombs. They became unclean. And we looked at last, uh, last time their pretension in presuming that they were superior to others, including their forefathers, that they weren't subject to the same sins. Lastly, today, we're going to be looking at their blindness and their perversion of truth. So turn with me, if you will, to uh, Matthew 23, verse 16. Matthew 23. <clears throat> okay, Matthew 23, starting in verse 16. Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple... He is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. So whoever swears by the altar swears... Oh, for whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Pray with me, please. Father, this morning, uh, I pray that you would show us where we may be blind in our lives, Lord, that you may show us where um, maybe there's falsehood or deceit, Lord, and that you would open our eyes to see, Lord, how we can live in truth and how we can walk in your light. Father, speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in all of the other woes, you know, Jesus starts out by calling the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. People that put on a false front who had a pretended goodness that was simply for show. But here, Jesus calls them blind guides. He calls them blind, emphasizing their ignorance of God's truth and their choice to live in darkness. This is another direct slap in their face. Basically, they, they had this self-righteousness. And as God's chose, chosen people, the Jews were entrusted with God's revelation. Turn with me, if you will, uh, to the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 1. And we'll take a look at that. Romans 3, 1.
In Romans 3.1, the Apostle Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So they were entrusted with God's revelation. And because of this, the Jews consider themselves guides to the blind. Turn to uh, uh, chapter 2 in the book of Romans, verse 17. In chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You boast in the law. Uh, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they took pride in their superior religious knowledge and understanding. Uh, but they were blind leaders leading blind Israel. And together they were doomed to judgment if they would not come to the light. Jesus declared in Matthew 15, 14, Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So we find God using similar words to describe uh, false prophets throughout the Old Testament. Uh, in Isaiah 56, 10 and 11, I'll read it to you. It says, His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. And also in Isaiah 9.16, For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. So Jesus calls them blind because they're in darkness, ignorant to the truth of God. And they're guiding others into the darkness, farther away from God's kingdom. So... What is he saying here? What are these blind guides saying? You know, in verse 16, you can go back to Matthew now, chapter 23. In verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Well, what they're saying is that, you know, it's okay to swear by some things without being truthful or keeping their word by swearing... Uh, without being truthful or keeping the word, but by swearing by other things, it was absolutely binding, and anything untrue was punishable, punishable by Jewish law. This was never God's intention for the purpose of, uh, God's intention and purpose for swearing and oaths and making vows. The principle of swearing or oath-making um, to the Lord in the Mosaic Law is summed up by a combination of ideas based on the following scriptures. Turn with me back to the uh, Old Testament, Leviticus, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 19, 12. We need to take a little bit of time to look at um, what this kind of meant, swearing an oath or making a vow. You know, every society needs a way of ensuring truthfulness, kind of like we have contracts in our day. Uh, we have to be able to ensure that people that make a promise that uh, they are obligated and they will, they will fulfill it. So uh, making an oath or making a vow was kind of like in that context back then. 
So in Leviticus 19, God lays it out this way. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And then in the next book over, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, it says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. A couple more. Go to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. It's the next book over. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. And then back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Sorry for all the, all the turning. But these are the scriptures that God uses, these different concepts and ideas of uh, swearing an oath. Deuteronomy 6.13 It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. So we see by these scriptures that by Old Testament law, swearing oaths and making vows were to be made only in God's name. And it had to be absolutely true, and the promises made had to be fulfilled or you'd be guilty of breaking the law and guilty of punishment. We see examples of swearing and oaths by God's people uh, before and after the law was given. For example, Abraham confirmed his promises to the king of, of Sodom by swearing an oath in Genesis 14, as did David. In Psalm 132, verses 1 and 2, it says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And even the Apostle Paul uh, had a type of uh, oath in Romans, uh, Romans 9.1. He said, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So again, every society needs a way to ensure truthfulness. Oaths, making vows, swearing in the name of the Lord, that, that was the way to do it. Um, God himself actually made oaths on certain occasions, like when he swore to Abraham. Uh, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 16 through 18, I'll read it to you. Uh, it says that, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It's important to note here that God didn't make oaths because his word would otherwise be questionable, but because he wished to impress upon men the special importance and the urgency related to his promise. Ultimately, God provided for proper oath-giving in, in his name as an accommodation to our sinful human nature. And we know that it's prone to deceit and prone to lying. So we find a clear description of an oath in Hebrews 6, 16. Hebrews 6.16 says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So you see, 
the name of someone or something greater is invoked to give more credibility to what is said. So swearing by God or making an oath in his name is inviting him to witness the truthfulness of what is said or to avenge it if it's a lie. Therefore, the swearing of an oath in God's name was generally taken to be absolute truth, which made an end to every dispute because it invited judgment upon the one who violated his word. In our day, a person gets sworn in when they testify before a jury. Now, I've only seen it on TV because I personally never had to serve jury duty. I think you just did that, right? So you tell me if, if this is true or not. I think it goes something like this. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Is that right? Do they still do that? No? Okay. It's a little longer than that? That's an example. What other types of oaths or vows are common in our day? Vows? Anybody? Wedding vows? Wedding vows that are made with God as witness to love and to cherish our mates uh, for as long as we both live. That's to recognize and and make a firm commitment to honor uh, the special sanctity that God places on marriage. Or how about oaths of office taken by government officials or other professional types of oaths? Jesus points out that in their tradition, they have developed a double standard for swearing. They developed a double standard. This very fact shows that they were not so much concerned for the truth, but they were rather more concerned about the evasion of the truth when it didn't suit their selfish interests. By saying, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing... This first part of the standard allowed for making false statements or vows that they would not be accountable to perform. In other words, they could lie without penalty. A person could lie all that they wanted, provided that everyone swore by the temple only and not by the gold of the temple, or that they swore by the altar only and not by the gift that is on the altar. Again, Jesus calls them blind fools and blind men. If you're not, go back to uh, Matthew 23, verses uh, 17. If you're not there now, Matthew 23, verse 17, he says, You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind man, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Not only was their perversion of the biblical tradition theologically wrong, it didn't make any sense. Jesus is saying, by what perverted logic did you determine that making a vow on something lesser was more binding than making one on something greater? And that's what they were doing. The only reason that the gold could be considered sacred enough to swear by was the temple that sanctified the gold. The same goes for the gift on the altar. It is only sacred and sanctified by the altar. So Jesus goes on to point out in verses 20 through 22 here, So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus is saying that everything involved with the temple and everything involved with heaven involves God. Because God is the creator of all things. To swear by anything at all involves God. Their tradition and these commandments of men allowed virtually any kind of oath to be used for almost any kind of purpose. So let's go back to Jesus' first public sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. <clears throat> Matthew five thirty-three. Jesus says, 
in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. They had opened the door to frivolous and uh, meaningless swearing that basically invalidated the legitimate purpose of oaths. People would declare and promise anything they wanted with an oath, knowing that they had a way out if their lies were discovered or if they broke their word. Instead of being a mark of integrity and prompting confidence, swearing became a mark of deceit and prompted skepticism. So by limiting honest oaths to vows to the Lord, they made those made directly to, to him or in his name, the keeping of any other oath became optional. So people would swear by heaven, they'd swear by earth, by the temple, by the hairs of their heads, uh, and by anything else they thought would impress those they wanted to take advantage of. In the command in Leviticus 19.12 that we read, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God, I, I am the Lord. Uh, was conveniently interpreted as you can't swear falsely by any other name. So through their tradition, God's standard of absolute truthfulness was lowered to man's sinful le level in order to accommodate their selfish desires. But Jesus says, don't make any oaths at all. So what's he saying? As we've already seen, God had given the guidelines for swearing oaths. They were only to be used on important occasions kind of like we use contracts today, and they were only to be sworn in the name of the Lord. And what Jesus, So what Jesus was condemning here was the flippant, uncalled-for, and often hypocritical oaths that were used to make an impression or to spice up daily conversation. Jesus' point in both of these passages was that God is the creator and the Lord of everything and is the God of truth in everything, and to carelessly and dishonestly call any part uh, of his creation as witness to a false oath was to dishonor God himself, whether or not his name was invoked. William Barclay comments, Here is a great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into, into compartments, in some of which God is involved and in others of which he's not involved. There cannot be one kind of language in the church and another kind of language in the shipyard or the factory or the office. There cannot be one kind of conduct in the church and another kind of conduct in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere, all through life and in every activity of life. He hears not only the words which are spoken in his name, he hears all words. And there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into any transaction. We will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. So Jesus says here in verse 37 of uh, Matthew 5, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Not only should oaths be totally truthful and dependable, but even the most routine conversations should be truthful in every detail. You've heard the, uh, the expression, his word is his bond. Well, every person's word in the course of everyday speech should be as good as their oath or vow, unqualified as to their truthfulness. 
James put it this way in James 5.12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or, or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. <clears throat> by show of hands, how many in this room have ever told a lie? How many? Look around. Do I see any hands down? Because you would just be lying if you did. <laughs> okay. Again, by a show of hands, how many of you in this room are liars? Whoa, that's surprising. I, I'm kind of shocked to see that. Because, you, know? <laughs> um, you know, typically when you think about that, I mean, it, it makes you think, well, how do we define what a liar is? You know? Anybody that just tells a lie or somebody that practices lying all the time? You know, I heard a story um, about a little girl in Sunday school. Uh, the teacher uh, at, at the class asked the class, um, can anybody in the class tell me what a lie is? And the little girl raises her hand. She said, yes. A lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we can all relate to that, you know. I mean, out of the mouth of babes, sometimes the truth comes. Uh, we find ourselves in pickles sometimes, and sometimes we avoid the truth to get out of it. Um, think about it. I mean, how about at work? Let's look at some examples. Have you ever called in sick when you weren't really? Have you ever shaded the truth about what you were really doing or the progress that you were making or given false reasons or excuses for the lack of performance? How about with your family or your extended family or your in-laws? Have you ever shaded the truth about how you spent time or money or, or given false excuses to get out of doing something you didn't want to do? How about when it comes to personal loss or gain? How about income taxes? You see, truth has no degrees or shades. A half-truth is a whole lie, and a white lie is really black. God's standard has always been absolute truthfulness. In Psalm 51, 6, it says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And in Proverbs 16, uh, 6, verse 16 and 19, it states clearly that the Lord hates a lying tongue and a false witness that breathes out lies. You see, it's part of our sinful nature to hide truth or to lie in order to protect our selfish interests. This is part of what we call living in darkness, where our fleshly lusts and our misdirected feelings kind of run the show. It's a kind of blindness, if you will. You know, let's take a look at an example from Scripture. Uh, we're going to take a look at the Apostle Peter. Turn with me to um, Matthew 26, verse 20. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 69. Matthew 26, verse 69. Jesus had just been arrested, and he's being tried before the Sanhedrin. And Peter's sitting outside the courtyard, and he gets questioned by a young girl. And he finds, in the heat of the moment, when he was put on the spot, he didn't have it in him to speak the truth. So in verse 69 we read, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying... I do, not, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out 
when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it, this time with an oath. He denied it with an oath. I do not know what you mean. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. This is where you say, Whoa, whoa. You see what's going on here? I mean, can you feel the weight of it? Can, can you feel the heaviness of Peter's woe as he goes out and, and as he weeps bitterly? I mean, when, when asked about his association with Jesus for the first time, he lies. The second time, he reinforces his lie with an oath. And then the third time, he not, he not only swears an oath, but he invites a curse on himself as judgment for lying. Whoa, he's devastated, he's shocked. This man who traveled and ministered with Jesus for over three years, who saw numerous miracles, who audibly heard God speak, who actually walked on water for a short time, when push came to shove, he caved under the weight of the truth. His first and natural inclination was to lie. It was basically an automatic response. Remember, not too long before this, you can turn there if you want, Matthew 26, verse 31, Jesus said to, to the disciples, he said, you will, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And in verse 33, Peter answered and said, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then in verse 35, Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now, we know that Peter was prepared to fight to the death, man to man. You know, in all the other Gospels, it says that a certain, a certain one that was standing by took his sword out and smacked off the ear of uh, you know, the high priest's servant. But John's Gospel reveals that it was Peter. Peter was the one who drew his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But he was not prepared to answer truthfully the questions posed by a couple of young servant girls. When he was with Jesus and the other disciples, he was bold. But when the disciples were scattered and he was by himself, what was really inside of him came out. Isn't that how it often is with us? When we're together, we have a certain boldness, but we really find that what's inside comes out when we're alone, when we're by ourselves. I don't know about you, but I found myself in this position more times than I care to admit. From where you least expect it, you're put on the spot, and what's really inside of you is revealed. And many times we don't like what we see. It can be the opposite of what we know to be right and good, the, op the opposite of what we want to see, the opposite of what we want to be. So what gives? Why are we like this? Let's take an example that uh, maybe you can relate to. Has anyone here ever had a problem with procrastination? Anybody? Yeah. Well, I know I've struggled with this. You know, a very important part of maintaining our integrity is learning to do the things that need to be done when they need to be done. 
So let's say you, uh, you don't get an assignment completed on time or your performance is lacking because you really didn't spend the time necessary to get the job done right. So your boss or your teacher confronts you about it and you begin to make excuses or even lie about it to avoid the truth. Why wouldn't you just say, you know, I blew it. I really haven't learned to do the things that I need to do when I need to do them. So we kind of need to seek the root of falsehood in our lives, you know, to try and understand what's really going on. Part of learning to live in the truth is to really question why we avoid it. We need to ask ourselves, you know, why did I do that? Maybe you felt the other person would get angry with you or think badly of you or not like you anymore. And you wanted to avoid that because you find that you're really dependent upon what others think about you. It's kind of what they, it's what they call image management or approval addiction. And as we begin to peel away the layers, we find that our vision of who we are as God's child is not always accurate. God's unconditional love and acceptance, the complete security that God promises to us, is not effective in how we live. In other words, we don't truly believe it. Hold on a minute. It's our ideal, but it's not our true belief unless we behave like it's true. A great prayer to start off the day would be, God, give me the strength to live in the light of your truth today. May everything that I say and do be true and good. And so Peter, who knew what the very bottom felt like in terms of personal truthfulness and faithfulness, later in his life goes on to say, 1 Peter chapter 2, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure milk, the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, Jesus came to heal our blindness so that we could see the light and so that we could live truthfully. Blindness is it's like living in darkness. Jesus said in, in John 8, uh, 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Paul said in Ephesians 5, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walking in the light means walking in truth. We cannot do this in our own strength, but, we, but it also doesn't just happen to us without any effort on our part. Peter figured this out. Let's go to Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to be his to called us to who called us to his own glory and excellence. Verse four, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours 
and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take note, verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. This is from Peter. He figured it out. So we see that learning to follow Jesus is learning to become people whose yes is yes and whose no is no. To become people whose inside matches the outside. To become people that are just and merciful and faithful. And to become, to become people who open the kingdom of God to others by how we live and by how we love. To become people that naturally live like Jesus lived. We're going to worship God now and I'll invite the, van, the band to come on up. Um, if you're not following Jesus today, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. I'll, I'll be in the back and there will be some other elders in the back. Come and talk to us and we'll show you and we'll explain what it means to follow Jesus and how to do that. We're going to worship God through prayer. I'll be in the back. We'll have elders in the back. If you need prayer, come and talk to us and we'll pray for you. We're going to worship God through communion by taking of the bread and dipping it into the wine, remembering Jesus' sacrifice for us. We're going to worship God in song. We're going to worship God in giving. We have boxes on the sides and boxes in the back so you can worship God with your tithes and offerings. And then we're going to worship God in fellowship. So hang out afterwards and uh, just get to know one another. Pray with me. Father, this morning we pray that um, you would reveal the, the darkness and the blindness in our, our lives, Lord, and that you would, Father, shine your light of truth upon us, that um, we might live in truth, Lord, and walk according to your spirit, Father. Teach us what that means, Lord. Give us the strength to do the things that we need to do, Lord, to grow closer to you, to learn to love you more, Lord. Thank you for your grace and your gifts to us. In Jesus' name, amen.